The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, after Just Stop Oil throws soup over Van Gogh's sunflowers, we ask them why and explore the history of iconoclasm in museums. Plus, Art Basel's new Paris Fair and Frank Bowling in Boston. I talked to Emma Brown of Just Stop Oil about why they targeted a Van Gogh painting in London for their climate emergency protests, and to Stacey Baldrick of the University of Leicester, a specialist in iconoclasm and attacks on works of art. The first version of Paris Plus, Art Basel's fair in the French capital, opened this week, and I spoke to Melanie Gerlis about how it compares to Paris's previous fair, FIAC, and to the freeze fairs in London last week. And this episode's work of the week is Frank Bowling's Sun Crush, which features in an exhibition of Bowling's work at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, opening this week. Reto Turing, the curator of the exhibition, tells us about the painting. Before all that, it's your last chance to take advantage of our student subscription offer. If you have a friend or family member who's studying art, art history or another subject this year, why not buy them a gift student subscription to the art newspaper from just £25 per year? Visit our website, click subscriptions and select student subscription. Do also subscribe to this podcast and our sister podcast, A Brush With, wherever you're listening. Now, last Friday, the 14th of October, this happened. That was the sound of Phoebe Plummer and Anna Holland, two activists from the group Just Stop Oil, throwing a can of tomato soup over Vincent van Gogh's sunflowers in the National Gallery in London. It was one of a number of climate emergency protests involving art to have gained huge attention across the world in recent months. In May, a man attacked the Mona Lisa with cake, and in July, activists from the group Ultima Generazione glued themselves to the glass of Botticelli's Primavera at the Gallery degli Fizzi in Florence. I spoke to Emma Brown, the spokeswoman for Just Stop Oil, about the protests and its aims. Emma, can you first say what the goal is of the Just Stop Oil protests? Yeah, so as a campaign, we have one demand, which is really simple, and it's that the UK immediately stops any new licensing consents for any more drilling or exploration for oil and gas in the North Sea. So we're not asking to turn the tap off overnight. We're asking that we don't explore for new oil and gas fields because at this point in time in 2022 it's just madness. And in terms of the atmosphere around that obviously there was a rather absurd list that was listed as a anti-growth coalition as it's called by the trust government and it included Extinction Rebellion for instance. So do you feel that the campaign is therefore more urgent and is that informing your actions to a certain degree? What's informing our actions is the dramatically escalating climate catastrophe that we are starting to see even in the UK now. We're in the middle of a drought, which is probably going to affect crops next year. Um, We reach 40 degree temperatures here. So as well as it being, you know, uh, we can kind of talk about the, the politics of the ridiculous government that we currently have. But what's more urgent, I think, is how urgent the climate catastrophe is and that we are still not seeing the required urgency from our government. In fact, we're seeing the complete opposite. They're actually looking to license over 100 new oil and gas fields this autumn, which is completely incompatible with any kind of climate action. And we don't know what else to do at this point than to take direct action. It really is our last hope as people. And when did you start thinking that art was a sort of convenient vehicle for that direct action? So we started targeting artworks back in the summer. They have been surprisingly valuable to us as a campaign. I think because of the value that we place on artworks as a society and the kind of touchiness of our sensibilities towards these precious objects, they've acted as a real vehicle for the kind of outrage. And I think a lot of us are not sitting with the reality of what's happening to us. You know, we're in a kind of stage of soft denial where we can know intellectually what's happening, but we're not really feeling it. And 
if you do feel it, if you do see it, you know, if you actually empathize with the people across the global south that are suffering with starvation, if you actually empathize with the 20 year olds that are worried that we're going to run out of drinking water before they're 40 years old, then a bit of soup thrown at a painting just completely bears into insignificance. So I think it's really demonstrated that um, cognitive dissonance that I think many of us are in, in, in the West especially. Before we start talking specifically about the soup and the sunflowers, I wanted to talk about the gluing actions, because it seems to me there's something of a difference in that kind of action to what happened last week. The gluing actions, you didn't directly target the surface of the pictures to the same extent. It was usually the frame or around the picture or the plinth, for instance. Can you say something about those first? So, you know, why glue for a start and also what you intended to do through that? A friend of mine has got a documentary out at the moment called Finite, which is about the protest movements that happened around the coal fields in Germany and um, and in the UK. And superglue, lock-ons, these are all devices that protesters have used for years and years. Superglue is just another convenient version of a lock-on. You know, it means that you cannot be removed as quickly. That's the purpose of, of gluing. That's the purpose of locking on. And so I think what's interesting is the fact that We have been gluing ourselves and locking ourselves onto oil terminals. People have been tying themselves to trees to try and stop old growth forests being destroyed. But what we're seeing now and what we're doing now is we're taking those protests into cities, into institutions, onto public roads and using those same tactics, but confronting the society with those tactics. And I think... I haven't thought about it specifically in terms of the surface and the the edge of the painting. I think really what both of those things have in common is we're not actually damaging the artwork itself now. But for me, what's interesting about the gluing on and that is that we're taking those forms of protest from somewhere which was easy to ignore, from somewhere that was distant and taking them into the city because the fact is that we can't waste our time anymore just trying to defend against these new disastrous projects. We need to stop those decisions being made because also we're tired. It's so tiring locking on and being in an oil terminal for 60 hours and trying to defend it with your body, the last breath of your body. You know what I mean? That, that is so tiring. What we need to do is stop the system that is allowing this to happen. And that's why we're using those tactics, but bringing them in to spaces that are public facing now because we need everyone what's interesting i think in terms of the response to the action last week is that there's obviously a huge scope of reactions to it some are absolutely supportive some are partially supportive some questioning the means famously andrew marr the political journalist said that you'd lost him forever one of the things that some people are saying is i supported the glue protests but this is going too far how do you react to that I think we've really, really, really let our young people down, really let them down. I think we're ignoring people suffering in the global south. We're ignoring the fact that millions of people are displaced. We've donated from the UK £800,000, which is two pence per displaced person. I think that all of those people that are saying, oh, I, I, I don't agree with protesting in that particular way, please Protest in any way that you see fit. But I don't see people protesting. I don't see people out on the street. And how bad does it have to get before we get to a stage where we are protesting out in the street? Because really, if, if we were to do a protest that offended nobody, we would just be sitting on a piece of grass with a blank placard and it would be doing nothing. I think even if we were to do a clever protest, all that happens is that people go, oh, yeah, that's pretty clever. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is not just our cause. This is your cause, Ben. This is everyone's cause. And we also need to, especially on the left, we need to have a level of solidarity. These young women are 20 and 21 years old. How dare you? you we need to be having solidarity with those young people. So what if it's a bit crass? What does that matter? It's not as if they hadn't done that action, that the news story would have been replaced with a really serious news story about climate change. It wouldn't. It would have been replaced with some other nonsense that Liz Truss is doing or some celebrity story or something else. Because the fact of the matter is it's just not getting through. And that's also our responsibility as adults, all of us. It's not only our responsibility as a small number of of people that that are doing these direct actions. It's our responsibility as a society. 
And so if you don't agree with that particular protest, I would say to everyone, do something. And of course, the idea of this is not, you know, you stated it's, it's about drawing attention to the subject. It is not a personal attack on Van Gogh. But I think one of the things that people are feeling, some people are feeling, is that they do have a deep emotional connection. Vincent Van Gogh has become, they've internalised him. He's become part of their sort of cultural makeup and they see him as an ally to you and they see themselves as an ally to you. And this has thrown them a bit. I suppose I'm trying to establish why people have reacted so emotionally. Were you concerned at all about about alienating people in that sense that, that actually potential allies have been disenfranchised to a certain degree even if they may actually be climate protesters in other ways not necessarily with your organization so i studied sculpture and environmental art myself which is about art within and outside of a gallery setting and it's about art as a social vehicle a vehicle for social change as well and i think we've got siloed quite a bit into our individual specialisms and that's i think that's been to a detriment and that's one of the reasons why we're in this position because scientists are siloed into science Politicians are the ones that have all the power and the money. They've got the biggest silo, but they don't have any of the knowledge and the experience that would allow them to make better decisions. But artists as well have been professionalised and siloed as well, because we are a lot more than that as artists. Artists throughout history have been hugely involved with movements for social change and justice. And I think... Obviously, these paintings are incredibly valuable as well, but Van Gogh prioritised the nature and life over representations. And he also died penniless. You know, our society completely devalued him. It's only now that he's dead that we have these amazing images. And I totally agree, these images are amazing and beautiful. But I don't see how one protest is going to put people off. You know, the Andrew Marr comment I found ridiculous. I mean, we've also had Noam Chomsky come and support us. And I don't know if you've seen the interview with Andrew Marr and Noam Chomsky. But unfortunately, um, he really called him out because Andrew Marr is a figure of the establishment, basically. And I don't see how you could be like, well, these activists, I didn't like their particular protest. So I would now like to die of devastating climate change and for my children to perish in a flood or, or die of starvation. It's a ridiculous argument. I don't think it will put activists off acting from whatever movement they're in, whatever kind of change they're trying to create. What I would really hope is that it does cause some discomfort in the sensibilities of the general public. Because I think what got me involved personally, and I think this is something that things that upset us can later on lead us into another direction. So I went to a talk one of the talks that Just Stop Oil do and Extinction Rebellion do, where they really tell you the cold, hard truth of the situation that we're in. And there was one point in the talk where the speaker was being quite um, upsetting, actually talking to us and saying, you guys talk about caring about, you know, Black Lives Matter, for example, I'm mixed race myself. Or you guys talk about, you know, caring about social issues, etc. But you're willing to just sit back and watch Billions of people become displaced in India, Pakistan and Africa. And that really struck me. And I actually swore at him because I was really offended by that. But it made me really think. And I thought, yes, these are the values that I really think that I have as a person. But by ignoring this huge catastrophe, this reality, I am sitting by, you know, and and allowing that to happen. And that's not the person that I see myself as. And I think that's why we're getting so upset because we're being upset and we're being challenged. And it's not saying that I've got all the answers or that Just Stop Oil has all the answers. Not saying that at all. But we are saying that there is something wrong in society where we are more upset and shocked about this than about millions, potentially billions of people dying. Whole areas becoming completely uninhabitable. This is not in the distant future. This is in like the next 10 years, 20 years. So I think that what we really need to do as a society is is be shook up. And I think that social change is not going to happen without discomfort and without agitation. And we're a nonviolent movement. That's so important. But discomfort and agitation and tension is going to be important for any social change. It's not going to happen so super smoothly, is it? Tell me about the, the lengths that you go to, because is it right you talk to conservators before you take these actions on, on artworks so that you know 
the conditions that they are in and therefore you know for instance they are glazed or that were you to stick to a frame then it wouldn't damage it hugely tell me about that well, I don't know if it's as advanced as that, but you can just go and have a look and you can see that it's covered in right. a layer of personal okay. Sorry, okay, fine. That's what I thought. I, I had read that conservators were consulted. But it's not as, as, as much as like conservators are consulted. It's like we have a huge variety of people who are supporters of Just Stop Oil and some of them are conservators. Ah. You know, they actually support the action because they're also active and they're also extremely worried about climate change. So we would consult with those kinds of people. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. I want to talk to you about the broader nature of climate protests in museums because one of the interesting things is that there were comments from Chris Garrard who is a who's from Culture Unstained which has done great work in terms of highlighting fossil fuel sponsorship in museums and campaigning against mm-hmm. them. They too have staged very eye-catching protests in museums etc. They too have got front page news from those protests. On the one hand he wanted to emphasize that he supported the bravery of just stop oil but he said this and i just want to read it back to you he said in the past creative protests at the national gallery took on its sponsorship by shell successfully and showed solidarity with the pcs union workers striking when their jobs were being privatized and then he isolates solidarity is key to how we build the movement then he says protests are by definition disruptive but who is it you are targeting here who does this create pressure for how will this impact or create pressure for front of house workers your potential allies i'm interested in this idea of solidarity particularly and about solidarity in the protest movement with other organisations, do you think it makes it more difficult for other organisations now as well as yourselves to be able to stage any further protests in museums and galleries as a result of this? Are museums and galleries going to be more on edge and more restrictive of potential protests, do you think? Potentially, you know, there could be an effect where people are searched for cans of soup or other things going into galleries and art spaces but again I mean this is something I often hear quite a lot from people that aren't working class speaking for working class people about these effects of like cleaning some some soup off some glass I'm just going to say again I've got students that I know that went to Glasgow School of Art that have been to prison for protesting for blockading oil terminals, for protesting at Kelvin Grove, you know, for standing outside an oil depot with a sign. These people are 17, 18, 19 years old. I think we need to just get a grip, to be honest. The way that we have to go to get any kind of future at all, any kind of future, just in terms of having food to eat, water, not devastating heat waves that are going to kill millions upon millions of people every year the way we have to go the social shift that we have to undertake is rapid and it's so huge and we have such little time that I really can't worry about you know that people were complaining about the milk protests as well like crying over spilt milk like the way that we have to go we can't spend decades trying to convince people just with rational argument because the rational argument of course would be we immediately halt all new fossil fuel projects. I mean, everyone, everyone agrees with that. What we're doing is trying to put pressure on. It's trying to put pressure on the government. This is only one action. Obviously, we've seen the one at Dartford Bridge. Yeah. Hugely disruptive, hugely eye-catching. We know that they were having COBRA meetings about us every single day when we were blockading the oil terminals, and they'll be having the same now. It's putting pressure on them, and it's putting them in a difficult position because they have to decide whether they're going to basically lock up peaceful protesters, or whether they're going to do the thing that they should have done back in 2021, which is stop licensing new oil and gas projects. And, and that is the pressure that we're putting on. We're embarrassing them. We're causing disruption. It's like when you see the, the strikes happening, they cause disruption. They cause disruption because that is the only thing that works. So that is what we're doing. And there's obviously smaller actions that we're doing like the actions at the art galleries which only require a few people but are hugely attention grabbing and hugely debate provoking but that's only one part of the whole picture of actions that we're doing and they're all designed to put pressure on the government and also to try and get the climate emergency to the top of the agenda to the top of people's minds because if you stand at the side of the street people don't listen to you if you stand in the street People listen to you. That is how it works. We've kind of forgotten our history a bit, you know, (laughs) because that's the way it's always worked. 
Emma, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. You can read more about the spate of climate emergency protests in museums at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for Android and iOS, which you can download from Google Play and the App Store. Now, as Emma mentioned, the Just Stop Oil protests in museums explicitly referred to the suffragette protests of the early 20th century. These actions, and particularly an attack on the Rugby Venus by Velasquez, also in the National Gallery, are discussed in a recent book written by Stacey Baldrick, an associate professor in the School of Museum Studies at the University of Leicester. The book is called Iconoclasm and the Museum, and I spoke to Stacey about how the Just Stop Oil protests relate to long history of attacks on art explored in the book. Stacey, you must have been absolutely intrigued watching the events of last week unfold across the week in terms of reactions and in terms of the history of iconoclasm, which you've written about. Yes, well, these are not surprising um, issues to me because it's my field of, of study. But certainly whenever there's an incident that involves iconoclasm or, or image breaking, as I see it, these are definitely sensitive issues and people have strong views about them. They also become media items and conversations about iconoclasm and debates for and against and attempts to understand them. All of these things come up with each iconoclastic event. So yes, it's interesting to see how the media contributes to this debate by focusing on the extremes or or by polarizing views when in fact there's usually a lot more to talk about than what hits the media. There are rationales behind iconoclastic acts, there are specific details that often get missed out and eventually with time forgotten because it's the sort of sensational aspects that make the papers and stay in people's minds rather than some of the more mundane details, perhaps. <laughs> well, let's talk about this in the context then of one of the items that you discuss in the book, which is this very famous incident in the suffragette activism, which was when the Rokeby Venus, that was called the Toilet of Venus, the work by Diego Velasquez, which had only recently then been acquired by the National Gallery, was slashed by Mary Richardson. And I'm using the term slashed and I'm conscious that that's a very emotive <laughs> term. That's the kind of thing you're talking about, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. And and the fact that the Times, when reporting about Mary Raleigh Richardson and her actions, called her hysterical and portrayed her in a way that was quite different to some of the other reports, which described her as standing calmly and making a statement about why she chose to do what she did, which was as an act of protest against the imprisonment of Emmeline Pankhurst. And yet what the Times wrote and other papers at the time of the event in 1914 has stayed with people thinking about that attack as a frenzied attack on an artwork when in fact it was well thought out. <laughs> it was planned so that she would be able to physically damage the artwork in between the changing of guard shifts at the time. So in terms of how acts of iconoclasm are, are portrayed and, and remembered, it tends to be in a sensational way. And what I'm interested in is really the details and, and looking at it as a human phenomenon, as something that that happens over and over again and happens in relation to contested objects, contested artworks, as well as um, other symbols that become a focal point for big debates. And of course, there are different reasons why objects or artworks are attacked. But do you have a theory as to why, for instance, the sunflowers would become a target? I mean, we've heard the descriptions from Just Stop Oil themselves, but why is it that works like this are such sort of powerful subjects for iconoclasm? They're powerful subjects for lots of reasons, I think. And their choice of Van Gogh's sunflowers it was their choice for their reasons. And they've been very articulate in expressing their thoughts behind their act of civil disobedience. One can also see this very famous image, this iconic image of 
sunflowers as something that represents the planet, nature, um, the very thing that is being destroyed <laughs> through climate change and in other forms as well. So as a symbol, it is very meaningful, definitely. But one of the things that's really striking in this instance is that, yes, sunflowers are not a body. So some of the sort of reports and reactions are not as explicit as those to Mary Richardson's act, which were sort of basically imagining Velasquez's Venus as a real human body. And we're talking it like it had been mutilated and brutalized. But still, the level of emotion in the reaction to the attack on sunflowers is very similar, isn't it? Absolutely. And this this happens whether you're talking about an abstract painting or any other form of artwork, a monument, etc. It doesn't have to be representational of a figure, of a human figure, for people to start referring to an artwork as a living thing. And for many people, they are living things. They were made by human actions. And in this instance, the painting also belongs to the public. And so it's as if you're attacking part of the public's body in a way, you know, if you want to take that metaphor further. So it's very understandable, the response. And it's also very common for this to happen, this anthropomorphization or calling something a, a living thing or a human thing. Yeah. And it's very striking, isn't it, that Just Poyle themselves very directly referred to the suffragette protests in their own justification for doing what they've done. Yes, that is interesting. And they, they're clearly aware of the of the history of social protest. And as part of the suffragette strategy, they were interested in a variety of actions, including the destruction of uh, cultural property in various ways. Women, when they were going into art galleries around the time of the suffragette movement, would often have their muffs <laughs> searched, <laughs> their hand muffs and handbags and things like this for any weapon that could do any damage. I think umbrellas were taken away from them too, perhaps. So what's interesting also is that Mary Richardson's attack was not unique there were attacks on paintings at Manchester Art Gallery and other places, which is very interesting. But it's it's only that one that gets singled out. And it's very interesting that the way that the images of that have now circulated is, and I think you say it in your book, that the image of the damaged painting itself becomes a new image of that artwork. So in a sense, it becomes an entirely different work. Absolutely. And similarly with certain monuments, you know, uh, certain monuments that are toppled become known more as images of toppled monuments than the original monument when it was still standing. So it's interesting that um, it was really in the 1960s that the image of the damaged Rope B. Venus became of interest to lots of artists, particularly the artists in the Destruction and Art Symposium group. Um, so artists like Gustav Metzger and John Latham, Yoko Ono, Rafael Montañez, Ortiz, and others. So the idea of destruction as a creative force and looking at destruction in lots of other ways, more scientifically, more uh, in terms of psychology and in a kind of interdisciplinary way that also becomes a focus of discussion. But then that begs the question you know does the soup spattered sunflowers now itself become a new icon an emblematic icon for this struggle that we're hearing about from Just Stop Oil? It may do it may do time will tell it's interesting to see that certain attacks on artworks become symbols in themselves and then others just fade away. Yes, there have certainly been a number of politically motivated attacks on artworks, from artworks in galleries to definitely contested monuments. And certain images become used by political groups and some, some don't. So that's a good question. And in terms of the 
comparison of the attacks. Of course, one of the key things about this attack is that Justopol were very clear right from the start. They obviously planned it knowing that they were not going to actually damage the painting. Exactly. They keep reiterating this. And we know from the National Gallery statement, it was not damaged. But that is a crucial difference, isn't it? Because Mary Richardson actively wanted to damage the painting. So yes, Mary Raleigh Richardson had carefully thought through her plan and she was expressing anger as well as political views in her attack. So I'm not saying there wasn't some kind of emotion involved, but the object was the destruction of cultural property as laid out by the suffragettes. But they also had various other forms of protest and expressing this demand for the right to vote that altogether worked well. I think one of the things that I've seen getting lost in the outrage (laughs) that people are feeling about this attack on the artwork is there is that immediate reaction from people, I think, that, oh, my God, it's destroyed forever. And how horrific It was only really amongst curators and artists and maybe museum professionals, this question of, hang on, it's glazed, isn't it? It's framed and glazed. It's protected. It's not exposed to the elements. This is fine. But even so, despite the, the artwork not being harmed, the emotions are still there for people, you know. I think the frame was slightly damaged, but I think if it were a huge issue, perhaps the National Gallery would have said more about that. But what's interesting, too, is that several national level and high profile art institutions are are looking into iconoclasm, too, and and social protests. So last week, the Fitzwilliam Museum opened an exhibition called Defaced, which is about the use of money in social protest. And uh, the British Museum had an exhibition called I Object a few years ago. So it's quite interesting to see museums showing their awareness of this. And I actually think if there's more awareness, knowledge and understanding about iconoclasm generally, then that might help people to understand that it's part of a longer history. The artist Michael Rakowitz is another artist you discussed in the book. And I think he's a really interesting communicator about these issues, because one of the things that he's isolated is something that is being brought up time and again when it comes to issues of damage or iconoclasm, etc. So, for instance, when Notre Dame was burning, there was widespread dismay and shock. But some of the comments around it were, why are you caring so much about this building burning down when there are hundreds of thousands of refugees across the world and people are dying trying to cross bodies of water to try and get to safety. When it comes to the Just Stop Oil process, lots of the comments in support of Just Stop Oil have said, why are you caring so much about this painting that's not been damaged and so outraged about it when climate change is an emergency and we are on the edge? And we just heard Emma earlier on talking about that very issue. I'm intrigued by that sort of disjunct or that kind of curious polarization within the commentary about humans and objects and how they intersect and Michael's spoken very powerfully about how when books are burned people tend to burn that sort of thing so is there a common tendency in the discourse around iconoclasm for objects and people to somehow be separated and not seen as intertwined as it were? Michael Rakowitz is an amazing artist and he's worked very directly with the Bamiyan Buddhas in a couple of projects. And when the Bamiyan Buddhas were destroyed, I think it was Mullah Omar who asked, why does the world care more about these statues than our starving children? And I'm paraphrasing. So quite often for iconoclasts, they see a disconnect between the material and the human or animal or living thing, right? But I would also say that thinking about it historically, quite often there are parallels between, particularly if it involves regime change or iconoclasm from above, you will see the material practices of iconoclasm having parallels in the forms of corporeal punishment. So attacks on statues noses cut off, ears cut off, hands cut off, those types of actions are happening to humans. I'm talking historically, of course, but we saw this during the Reformation. Well, Stacey, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me.
Stacey Baldrick's Iconoclasm and the Museum is published by Routledge and is on offer at the moment, priced £27.99 or $35.96. You can also hear a conversation with the artist Ali Sherry, who created a series of works based on paintings in the National Gallery that were attacked, including the Rokeby Venus, on our sister podcast, A Brush With, wherever you're listening now. Coming up, we visit the Perry Plus Fair and discuss a Frank Bowling painting in Boston. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. Plans for a major privately funded contemporary art museum in Amsterdam are one step closer after passing a critical vote by the City Council earlier this month. The institution will be run by the Hartwig Art Foundation, a recently established Dutch organisation that commissions and acquires works to be donated to the National Collection of the Netherlands. The foundation was established in 2020 by the electronic trading billionaire Rob de Fares, who gave an initial pledge of 10 million euros to the foundation. The museum will be run by Beatrix Roof, the former director of the Stedelijk Museum in Amsterdam, who recently left the Garage Museum of Contemporary Art in Moscow after Russia invaded Ukraine. Yayoi Kusama and Kiki Smith are due to create permanent large-scale mosaic murals at Grand Central Madison, a massive new train hall being built underneath New York's Grand Central Terminal. The Metropolitan Transit Authority in New York announced last week that the hall will open in December. The Contemporary Art Commissions will join countless historic artworks in the Grand Central Terminal subway and commuter rail complex, including the famous ceiling painting of Constellations by Whitney Warren and Paul César Elieu that hangs over the main concourse. And finally, one of the British painter L.S. Lowry's most important works will remain on public view after being bought at auction by the Lowry Arts Centre in Salford in the UK. Going to the match sold for £7.8 million with fees at Christie's in London, setting an auction record for the artist. Julia Fawcett, chief executive of the Lowry, said in a statement that the acquisition was possible due to an incredibly generous gift from the Law Family Charitable Foundation. You can read all these stories and much more on the website and the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This autumn, Christie's spotlights modern and contemporary Middle Eastern art across a live auction in London on the 2nd of November and an online session until the 3rd of November. The sale presents a trove of unique and beautiful pieces from the Arab worlds and Iran, fusing modern pioneers with contemporary masters. Visit Christie's London between now and the 3rd of November to view highlights from these sales in person. Art of the Islamic and Indian worlds, including oriental rugs and carpets, takes you into a world of extraordinary art and objects featuring a rich selection of manuscripts, paintings, ceramics, metalwork and carpets. With the live auction in London on the 27th of October, don't miss the opportunity to view this sale in person from the 22nd to the 26th of October. Find out more about the sales and the exhibitions at christies.com. Welcome back. When, in January, it was announced that MCH Group, the owner of the Art Basel Fairs, was to take over FIAC slot at the Grand Palais in Paris to host a new contemporary art fair, it caused a huge ruckus in the French art world. FIAC was founded in 1974 and was a Parisian institution, unchallenged as France's preeminent art fair. The new fair, Paris Plus, finally opened this week, and I spoke to Melanie Gerlis, an art market columnist at the Financial Times and the Art Newspaper, to find out how it compared to FIAC, to the free fairs last week and to its sister fair Art Basel and whether it confirms Paris's growing prominence as a centre for the contemporary art market. Melanie, I'm going to start with an image which is actually the subtitle of your book about art fairs, which is a roller coaster ride. Is Paris Plus a new sort of refurbished train or is it a whole new visitor experience? It definitely wasn't a whole new visitor experience. I mean, it's tricky because FIAC, because it's in a temporary location, and so FIAC last year was already different from when it was in the Grand Palais, because it was in the Grand Palais Ephemer, but in the 12 months between, no, the two fairs do not look drastically different. I mean, the Art Basel team were at pains to point out they've only had nine months, they've only had nine months, and in, in practice, actually, it's less than that, because they, they took over in January, but they're director didn't come on board till March. So I think if we are going to see drastic changes, they will come. But, you know, your space is your space and and one is slightly limited by that. Ultimately, an art fair is an art fair. Exactly. (laughs) 
But is, is there any difference in the calibre of the works, though? I mean, one of the things that one assumes, because it's Art Basel, I mean, FIAC was already hmm. a affair with a very high reputation. Yeah. But one of the things that everyone always says is that Art Basel is the fair where everyone saves up the best works they have. And, and also there's a certain calibre to the works and also a certain blue chipness, if you like, to the Art Basel works. Is that carrying through into this fair? That did carry through, yes. You certainly saw people made a, a, a real effort, and that is whether it was, you know, older, largely 20th century work, a lot of Giacometti, I mean, paintings and sculptures as well. And, you know, there were some really fine works. People did make an effort. And I, the, the, the biggest sort of art Basel difference, I thought, was actually the, the back end of the fair. The, the sort of tale of the crucifix, as I've been calling it, but there's a kind of separate section just because there's only the Grand Palais FMR can only take so many people. That section, the galleries were really, all contemporary, really quite high calibre, and that was where I felt the most Art Basel effect. That's interesting. So tell us about the sort of makeup of galleries. Is there anything significantly different in terms of, you know, obviously the, the main players that we all know about, the Galligarchs, as I call them, or, the, or you know, the, the mega galleries, they're going to be there. But has Art Basel managed to attract a different calibre of, of other galleries to the fair that's different from FIAC? There were one or two. I mean, I spoke to one of the directors at Aquavella gallery who said they've never done a Paris fair before so and it was the Art Basel brand that brought them them Christophe van der Weg you know these are also some galleries that we hadn't seen at freeze the week before so there was a definite sense of occasion. In terms of the French community as it were I know there was a certain amount of sort of resistance to FIAC's end because there was a certain amount of affection towards FIAC has that community now kind of just embraced Paris Plus? Certainly the community inside the fair are being very positive, I think. And in fact, the fair director, who at the time of Art Basel's takeover, if you like, of FIAC, he was at a gallery at the time and he said it did feel like an orchestrated coup. But pretty quickly, French galleries realised, you know, Art Basel bring in some serious VIPs. There are definitely some galleries who weren't there, who were a bit disenfranchised, but that's going to happen, whatever. But, you know, yeah, FIAC, as I kept saying to people, FIAC was born in the same year as me. So nearly 50 years of affair, there is definitely some loyalty. Tell us about the calibre of collectors then, because one of the ways in which we can measure the success of an art fair is the kind of quality of VIPs per square metre, as it were. Mm. (laughs) Did you sense that that was a very high value? It was very busy. And the definite sense was that the people who were there were pretty good. I mean, you know, you walk past the rebels. James Murdoch was there because, you know, he now owns a large chunk of of MCH, which owns Art Basel. People were there from, you know, the Americans. People kept saying to me, the Americans are here. And they don't just mean visiting tourists. I met a couple of American collectors who had come, you know, they love Paris and they love Art Basel. So they had managed to bring in. I mean, the difficult thing is, in a way, comparing it to last year is quite tricky because last year was the first sort of post-pandemic fair. It was the first time in the temporary location. I think people forget that five, ten years ago, FIAC has commanded some pretty big collectors. But certainly the sense was things are on the up. Right. Obviously, it's quite instructive to compare it to London because Freeze Masters and Freeze London happened last week. And the American collectors thing is one of the things that we were (laughs) discussing last week, which is, you know, had American collectors come to London? Did they have, you know, cash at the ready to spend? Were some of those collectors that you just referred to there who are in Paris not in London last week? Or did you get the sense that they were all over for last week and this week? I think there was a combination. There were definitely, there was a sense of, you know, the art fair caravan moving from one city to another. And there were quite a lot of people I'd seen the week before in a different capital. But there were some people, yes, who said, they hadn't been at freeze. Right. And also, obviously, the visitor experience, the collector experience at the fairs is obviously something that's always talked about in relation to these two fairs that follow each other quite quickly. It was a real bum fight, as we talked about last week at Freeze London. There were a lot of unhappy VIPs, for instance. How did the VIPs fare this time? Did, how are the poor VIPs this year? <laughs> It was it was definitely the running gag of, of the fair. It wasn't definitely not as busy at the opening or as crowded at the opening. It got busier. The front part of the fair 
gets quite warm. So it got quite crowded. What people were saying was at least the people seemed to be more the right people who were there. There were definitely fewer complaints. People weren't queuing for an hour outside, but there were big queues for the VIP lounge. I didn't make it to the VIP lounge because the queue was so big. We might have forgotten what art fairs were like. I mean, this is not as it freeze was too crowded, but we might have forgotten just how busy they got in the pre-pandemic. The difference is I think we are all just a bit more aware of our social environment and distancing. and It's just become more uncomfortable. Okay. Obviously, Whenever we talk about Paris, we're always in this sort of comparison mode. We've just done it just there with the fairs. But also there is this ongoing comparison between London and Paris. What are dealers saying about this now? Obviously, we've got this big Art Basel fair landing in Paris. How has that upped the game? Are collectors talking about it? You know, how's the London-Paris comparison going? Everyone is extremely excited about Paris. That's not going away and and you know the, the minute you walk out a metro station and see I mean you, you're in a living museum it is such a beautiful city the weather was very good on the opening day it, there's a real real buzz to it I would say the only shift in conversation is it's not so much about London versus Paris it's London and Paris versus the rest of the world I mean New York is so dominant Asia you know it seems to still have everything to play for people trying to work out and and, you know the fairs themselves are, are, are bringing that on there's this sense of maybe we're stronger together but it's hard it's hard when you know Brexit exists it's hard when you have two back-to-back fairs organized by two competing art fair organizers it's hard not to make the comparisons I just think there is a slightly more of a sense of we are all European right and it feels also though that the museum fair mix this year Mm -hmm. seems really acutely well judged in the sense that you know there's this magnificent Joan Mitchell and Claude Monet show at at the Fondation Louis Vuitton which we covered in the podcast a couple of weeks back Mm -hmm. but generally actually the museum outlook looks really good in Paris this week you know Absolutely. And you saw that through the fair. I mean, David Werner had bought a Joan Mitchell painting. Um, he also had an Alice Neal. She has a show at the Pompidou. Um, Victoria Mira had also bought a, an Alice Neal. I mean, the sense of the deep, deep culture of the city creeping into that fair. Having said that, this year, and this was a big difference between this year and last year, London's museums also have put on a pretty good show this season. Absolutely. Last week, we were talking about the ultra contemporary, Mm. this, you know, the young artists Mm. who are selling for big bucks, even really at the start of their careers. Was there as much of that present or was that blue chipness that we were talking about earlier on? Did that sort of dominate more? I feel it's a more blue chip fair. But then remember, it's a mixed, but, you know, with Freeze, you've got you've got Freeze London separated you know by by a distance from freeze masters so the the freeze london will always feel more contemporary Uh, a lot of new works you know new tapestry by glenn brown at max hetzler gallery some actually quite exciting contemporary work but maybe less hyped so the artists were more i guess you call them blue chip contemporary Melanie, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. You're very welcome. Parry Plus continues until Sunday, and Melanie Gurlis' book, The Art Fair Story, A Roller Coaster Ride, is published by Lund Humphreys and priced £19.99 or $34.99. Finally, it's time for the work of the week. Tomorrow, the 22nd of October, the exhibition Frank Bowling's Americas opens at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. It looks in depth at a crucial period in the life of the painter who was born in Guyana in 1934, studied in Britain and began his career in London before moving to New York in 1966. The show gathers more than 30 of his paintings, including the landmark map paintings of the 1960s and his port paintings of the 1970s. A key example of this latter series is Sun Crush from 1976 and I spoke to the exhibition's curator Reto Turing about it. Reto, Sun Crush by Frank Bowling was made actually towards the end of his period in America where he was living predominantly in America. Can you say something about the work that leads up to this? 
Of course, yeah. It really is, as you said, it's really not the end of Frank Bowling's time in, in America as much as it is him in 1975 moving back to London and then for a long period of time sort of really going back and forth very regularly and still spending long periods of time in the US. But um, this is a moment when I think a quite a transitional moment for many reasons. And a few years before that, Bowling really started doing work that was, if you will, fully abstract. And um, in a way, I do think it marks not the end of a journey. That journey, I think, continues today. But it is maybe a bit of an arrival point in a way over you know, almost a decade for Bowling trying to not remove himself fully from his work, but I think to really step back behind this work. And I think for myself a lot, trying to really control or fully control the ways by which he can reveal himself in the work. And so the poor paintings that he starts making in around 1973, it's a rather gradual shift, as most of his shifts are in the work, really constitute maybe the first sort of like full-blown abstract works. And um, in that way, Suncrush is very, very much aligned with these works, although it was made just right after his relocation back to London. His time in America is actually a period of immense social change and also change within art history, isn't it? Because he arrives from a Britain that's absolutely obsessed with its form of pop art and he arrives in the state where pop art is obviously dominant too but also forms of abstraction are dominant and it seems to me there's an enormous amount of wrestling that goes on in the work as to how much he foregrounds one thing or another in the period leading up to this work. Very much so and I think this is really bowling understanding extremely well and he did go to New York prior to his relocation and choosing New York as his primary place of residence so he did know the place beforehand and he does go there I think because he fully understands that it is in a way the center of the art universe it is where a lot of the formal innovation is happening where a lot of the the discourse around art and its various lineages sort of convert and I think Bowling understood that with his goal to actively inscribe him into a certain lineage, into a certain canon, he actually had to be there to make that happen. In addition to, I also, as you mentioned, sort of a, um, an a enormous amount of change and debate around other issues, cultural, social, political, of course. But I do think that is sort of on top of Bowling's desire to be really at the center of the, the art world in terms of its formal innovations and really the history of abstract painting and the history of modernism. And I think that is sort of what he was seeking, is to be to be right there, to do that work where it was happening. That is really interesting. I mean, I've always found this a really interesting conundrum in Frank's work, in the sense that he's really resistant to being pigeonholed. He hated the idea of being a black artist, for instance, but yet he was also curating really important shows which are being reinvestigated now, actually, like Five Plus One, which was a show where he worked with other artists, including Melvin Edwards and Jack Whitten, for instance. So he's directly involved in quite political motivations, whilst also resisting certain categorization. Is that fair? That's very fair to say. In fact, we are um, giving Five Plus One exhibition he curated in 1969 for which he brought together five you know in retrospect maybe um, leading african-american artists artists who like him at that time haven't received the recognition they are receiving today he brings those together with his own work hence the title five plus one so six black artists five of them african-american and bowling being this insider outsider if you will in this wonderful role of um, being black, but um, not African-American, which did grant him a special place and a place from which he could speak to certain issues in a different way, maybe, than African-American artists could. And Bowling was absolutely aware of that. But I would say that um, a lot of the discourse on that level, he really immerses himself very quickly in upon his arrival um, in 19. 
1966 in New York, it's not something he was like fully immersed in beforehand, right? So he really hits the ground running and um, makes a lot of connections very quickly and processes what he experiences and what he learns in a very quick manner and incorporates it in his work. But as you say, he then also struggles to find a place for himself as a modernist artist, period. So that like his race, his skin color would not sort of be put up front every single time someone was talking about the work. And that struggle is something that I think is beautifully exemplified in a work like Sun Crush. Hence, sort of like saying, you know, it maybe does form and those poor paintings a kind of arrival in the way that here you see him being himself, still, I think, putting some of that life story that he brings with him into the work, but it's extremely subtle. It's very hard, if not impossible, from a viewer's standpoint to really pinpoint what that really is. Can you say in, in what way that is? Because it is intriguing, because if you were to look at this work, you would say it is a purely abstract work. It seems to be driven by process. And we know that there's a very particular process. But in what ways would you say there is that aspect of his personal journey or cultural journey in there? It's interesting, right? So bowling at various moments has pushed against the reading of autobiographical subtext specifically into these predominantly abstract works. In recent times, I think it's coming maybe a bit more overtly again to the forefront. At the same time, I personally, and I think I'm probably not the only one, can't help but read into that work something that I tie back to bowling, where he comes from, a black artist born in British Guyana, moved to London, then comes to the United States. Yes, I can see Morris Lewis, but I can see other American white abstract male artists sort of like that he references in these works. But if you look at the color, that incredibly drenched, intense, high-pitched oranges, greens, there's no way that any other artist at that point in time would have used such colors in such a magnificent, absolutely masterful way. He uses these high-pitched colors, yet he controls sort of like how he can set themselves against each other. And then also even the evocative title, Sun Crush, thinking about how that might, might not, again, reference kind of a more tropical climate, for example, British Guiana. And so I do think that's the moment where bowling arrives at a point where you can't help but try to read into the work some sort of autobiographical subtext. It's at that point then impossible really to tell exactly what that is. And if you read Bowling's text, so he, it was really a, during his time in, in the United States that he was not just incredibly productive in terms of his painterly practice, but also his output as a critique, as a, as a writer. He again and again sort of like thinks very actively about ways in which black artists can position themselves against this backdrop of abstract painting retaining their identity as black artists, which in his sense made them something special and which gave them a special vantage point, but not, as you said at the beginning, being pigeonholed. And I think Sun Crush is one of, you know, a few beautiful examples from around 1974, 75, 76, where he really arrives in terms of him really at that point being in full control of how much he can reveal of himself to maybe borrow a term by Edouard Glissant, sort of a state of opacity. He is there, but he's not. So he can really start to appear and disappear in his own work. And um, I think that is something that in his writing he has talked a lot about. Tell us about the technique behind the port paintings, because he is removing as much of his hand as he possibly can really here. It's, it's a sort of mechanism, right? Yes, very much so. Basically, after creating a series of very monumental canvases 
divided into bands of subtly contrasting color, which are more sort of referencing Barnett Newman, Mark Rothko. Bowling began searching for then new ways to challenge himself. It was really the fluidity of wet paint that provided the path forward at that point. And so to make these works, which are kind of put together under the label of poor paintings, Bowling used a self-built wooden platform with adjustable height. And then after tacking a dripping wet canvas onto the platform and then setting it at a desired angle, he started to pour on acrylic paint in these cascading streams. And he was swiftly sort of moving between either end of the platform, trying to really control the paint's direction and its speed. I mean, it's important that he uses acrylic, right? Because acrylic is a fast drying paint. And so you're able to apply layers quite quickly. So if, if you're using oil, you risk the potential that it's going to just become a mush of brown. Whereas here, because of that speed, that seems to me to be crucial because there's a sort of speed in the works, isn't there? A hundred percent. I think that speed is really, really tangible. That's where I think sort of like he does get back to a degree to... Morris Lewis, but then you can actually see, and that's something he, I, I can't say it in the exact same works, but for Bowling, it wasn't just sort of like, you know, paying homage to Morris Lewis, but really taking Morris Lewis further, sort of like paying homage to Morris Lewis and subverting and pushing him further at the very same time. And so his way of like using acrylic paints onto that platform really creates these incredibly dynamic paintings where those forms that almost start to to form some sort of Rorschach test where you can see something like masks almost sort of like at some point. I will also say some of these paintings are materially extremely complex. So for example, in a work like Sun Crush, you can actually still see some of the masking tape that he used to delineate the work that he just left on there. And that's something I think that then points forward even to works that become even more complex, even more built up going sort of like into the late 1970s and then 1980s and 90s. By the time he's making the board paintings, the debate about abstraction had shifted almost completely because it was the time we were at the height of conceptualism actually and a lot more diverse practices performance art is very prominent and so on so was there much critical debate about these specific works about frank's works yes and no i think it's quite remarkable how quickly bowling had some real success after his relocation to new york he had a solo exhibition, albeit very small, but still a solo exhibition at the Whitney Museum. He, as I said, contributed very actively in terms of his own writing. He made a lot of connections to, you know, from today's perspective, really some of the leading artists of that time, in particular African-American artists. I would say on the level of critical debate, as it really was the case with almost every other of his peers, black artists, they were, if not completely ignored, incredibly underrecognized, right? If you compare the amount of writing given to white artists, same stature, same relevance, same really speed of innovation. I mean, it's incredible how swiftly sort of bowling works his way towards, you know, in the, not even a decade from though still rather figurative, as you said, sort of like, you know, bacon and pop style works to complete abstraction. You know, doing an exhibition in the United States about an artist like Frank Bowling, it really becomes very obvious the discrepancy between the attention given to mostly white male artists and artists such as Frank Bowling and others. And of course, there's then, you know, a whole other group of artists who were truly, truly completely fell through the cracks and not given any attention. So as I said, I do think it's actually remarkable that Bowling had quite a bit of success during his time in the US. Although I think after that, the exhibition at the MFA Boston that is opening is really the first major solo exhibition given to Frank Bowling in more than four decades. And I think that speaks volumes. A 
Loreto, thank you so much for joining us. You're very, very welcome. Frank Bowling's Americas is at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston from the 22nd of October until the 9th of April 2023. It's then at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. That's from the 13th of May until 10th of September next year. And there are two related shows, Equal Six, a sum effect of Frank Bowling's Five Plus One at the University Hall Gallery at UMass Boston from the 14th of November this year until the 18th of February 2023. And revisiting Five Plus One at the Paul W. Zuccara Gallery at the Stoller Centre for the Arts, Stony Brook University, from the 10th of November until the 23rd of February next year. And that's it for this episode. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson, Henrietta Benthel and David Clack. And David is also the editor and sound designer. Thank you to Rich Felgate for permission to use the audio from his video of the Just Stop Oil protests. And thanks also to Daniela Hathaway. And to our guests, Emma, Stacey, Melanie and Rato. And thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.